chapter 17, verses 1 through 6, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and get from them a rod from each father's house, all their leaders according to their father's houses, twelve rods. Write each man's name on his rod, and you shall write Aaron's name on the rod of Levi. For there shall be one rod for the head of each father's house. Then you shall place them in the tabernacle of meeting before the testimony where I meet with you. And it shall be that the rod of the man whom I choose will blossom. Thus I will rid myself of the complaints of the children of Israel, which they make against you. So Moses spoke to the children of Israel, and each of their leaders gave him a rod apiece. For each leader, according to their father's house, twelve rods, and the rod of Aaron was among their rods. So again, after all the pain, all the turmoil, all the death of chapter 16, God is having them, hey, everybody put their rod in in the basket, and I'm going to choose my high priest here. What is a rod, right? It's simply a dead piece of a tree. That's all it really is. I think back to when we used to go to camp in Headwaters, you'd have a lot of kids, usually the middle school kids, they'd pick a walking stick out of nowhere, they'd grow an attachment to it, they'd want to sleep with it, they'd want to carry it everywhere, right? Some of them still have it, most of them have forgotten about that phase in their life, right? But that's all it really is. It's just a dead piece of a tree. They would use it as their rod. You can think of Psalm 23, verse 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. And a rod is a symbol of authority. The rod was used by the shepherd to protect and chastise, to protect the sheep and to also chastise the sheep. Maybe you go for walks around your neighborhood and you carry a stick with you in case a stray dog or animal comes uh, your way. It's the same type of idea here. We can think of back in Exodus, Moses, when he was a shepherd in the wilderness in uh, Midian, when he meets with God in chapter 2, verse 4, it tells us the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he says, it's a rod, right? It's just my stick. It's just my shepherd's staff. And I always love it by verse 20 in the same chapter. It says, then Moses took his wife and his sons and he set them on a donkey. He returned to the land of Egypt and Moses took the rod of God in his hand. And, and again, for us, so often we can look down on the day of small things. We can look at what we do for a living and say, oh, this really isn't holy. This really isn't service unto the Lord. I'm just stuck as a stay-at-home mom. I'm just stuck as an accountant. I'm just stuck in this dead-end job. But that's our opportunity to serve the Lord. Use that as an opportunity to say, Lord, this belongs to you. That's how Moses saw it. It was no longer just a rod, but now it's the rod of God uh, is in the hand of Moses. So God puts this test out for Moses and for the 12 tribes. Again, we see the importance of us not having to defend ourselves or come up with our own rationale of what we have and why we deserve it. But the Lord continues to defend Moses and Aaron. God continues to separate Moses and Aaron from the rest of the tribes of Israel and the leaders of Israel. God has each of them bring a rod. They write their names on it, right? So they can't later on say, oh, you just wrote your name on my rod, right? But he has each of them write their name on each rod. God's going to draw straws here. And God says that the man whom he chooses 
their rod will blossom. Verse 5, the men whom I choose, their rod will blossom. Thus I will rid myself of the complaints of the children of Israel which they make against you. It's interesting because one thing we can draw from here is that fruitfulness in a man's life demonstrates the calling of God upon him. Fruitfulness in a man's life shows the calling of God upon him. I don't know if you've ever met someone and they say, Hi, my name is Pastor so-and-so, but they have no church, they have no flock, they have no one following them, right? They're just a self-appointed pastor, right? It's like, hey, nice to meet you. My name is President so-and-so, right? What country are you the president of? Well, I have no country, but I refer to myself as President so-and-so, right? It it just doesn't work out that way. Be be careful of that. Be weary of that when men or even women today, right, give themselves self-appointed titles, and yet there's no fruit in their life. There's no fruitfulness in their life. And we do have to be careful with this. We could turn quickly to 1 Samuel 16. Because when we're speaking of fruitfulness in a man's life, we are not speaking of numbers. And oftentimes that's how we judge fruit within a church. If we're honest, many of us, we visited different churches and we attend one church and it's kind of empty. And we say, man, is God even in this place, right? They should just shut the doors, close it down, give up. And we attend another church and it's packed. And we say, God must be in this place. But in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, we have to be reminded just how God had to remind Samuel, a great man of God. God tells him, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Again, when a man is called, there's fruit in his life and it all begins in his heart. Just as we mentioned, right, what is a rod? It's basically a dead tree limb. God is able to take death and bring it to life. That's what he's going to show us here in choosing Aaron, that God is able to take dead man's bones and bring them to life. God is able to take that heart of stone and now make it a heart of flesh. We can also see in God's economy, in Luke 21, verse 1 through 3, tells us that Jesus, he looks up and he sees the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And then he sees a certain poor widow putting in two mites. Two, right, half a pennies down in the the tithe box. And then he says to his disciples, truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. Again, There's fruitfulness in the life of a man that's called by God, but it's not just the size of their ministry. It's not how many people. It's not their following on social media. But truly, number one, it's their own heart. And now the next question is, how has the ministry of this man affected his wife and children? That's one of the greatest ways you can see God's calling upon a man's life. How has this man's ministry affected his wife, and his children. And we don't have time to go through it, but we've seen two weeks ago when we looked at what, is it, what does it take to be a leader within church in First Timothy and Titus. It's one who rules his own household well. Because if he's not able to rule his own house, how is he going to rule the church of God? How is he going to deal with the house of God? So again, if maybe you're here and you're saying God has called you to ministry, practice it. 
on first and foremost your own life, practice what you preach, and then practice it with your own wife and your own children. Are they following the Lord? Are they seeking after God? Do they know the standard of God and of His Word? Uh, we're going through First Timothy chapter 2 with the young adults. In the next chapter, it all starts off with men. You should be lifting holy hands. Don't talk about God. Act out God in your life. How do you worship? How do you read? How do you pray? It's not just telling your kids, hey, you should read. Hey, you should pray. Hey, you should attend church. No, they should see it acted out in my life. They should see it demonstrated in my life. If we're honest, our kids follow us, right? The good, bad, and ugly, if we're honest, right? Sometimes my kids say certain things. Where did they get that from? From me, right? That's where they got that from, right? And that's how we need to be when it comes to our ministry. It all starts off in the home. Another thing we see in verse 5, I think a prayer many of us would love to pray. God says, thus I will rid myself of the complaints of the children of Israel, which they make against you. Now God, he was going to clear up this complaint that Moses and Aaron were taking too much upon themselves, that they had somehow grabbed the power within Israel. We're going to see in a couple chapters that the nation of Israel is going to be complaining that things were better off in Egypt, and at this point it's the teenagers and the young adults that never even lived in Egypt, and they're complaining things were better off in Egypt. But one thing I wrote here is no one likes a whiner, right? No one likes a whiner. There's a lot of... uh, Couples right now within young adults, right, dating and engaged. And I don't think anyone has number one on the bachelor they want to get with, right? I hope he whines like crazy. (laughs) I hope he complains about every little thing, right? I'll never forget I was chaperoning on a trip when Amanda was teaching at another high school. And we had this girl the whole trip. A full expense paid for a trip to New York City. We're going to this fancy restaurant, that fancy restaurant. We got two shows on Broadway. She was whining the whole time, nonstop. Finally, we're in a museum. We're going up the escalator, and she kept whining. I just turned around and said, no one likes a whiner. Stop whining. And she looked at me in shock because I'll just quiet the rest of the trip. David Guzik, he says, complainers are not issue motivated, though they claim to be and they appear to be. They are heart motivated. They murmur because they have a complaining, discontent heart. And the complaining heart is demonstrated when people murmur about one issue after another, never being satisfied. That's the truth of the matter. We're supposed to be able to rejoice in any season and in any state that we're in. But so often when someone's just used to always whining, when someone's always used to complaining, they will find a reason to complain. They will find a reason to whine, right? Some people think it's a gift of the Holy Spirit, right? To be able to see what's worst in the church at this moment, right? It's not. It's a heart that's issued out of just complaint and ingratitude. And parents, if there's something we should be fostering in our kids, it should be a heart of gratitude. A heart of gratitude. Again, the way we raise our kids, it will affect how much people are going to want to pour into their lives. You see, you and I as a parent, we have to take them, whether they're good, bad, or ugly, right? Because they're our kids, 
But you even think of Paul. Paul's on different missionary trips. And he sees Timothy and he sees the love of God and the discipline that he has for God that Paul tells Timothy, I saw it in your mom and in your grandma. And now Paul sees this in Timothy and says, hey kid, you want to go on a mission trip with me? Again, we have to realize that. In another way, in the same breath, we can think of John Mark, right? He's on a mission trip with Paul and with Barnabas. He's a family member to Barnabas. And Paul says, hey, I'm not going on any more mission trips with this kid. He quit halfway through. Barnabas says, hey, I'll take with him. He's my primo, right? He's my nephew. I have to take him, right? He's my cousin. He's related. I have to take him. And that's one thing we have to realize in our kids. The way we raise them will open more doors for them or it will shut doors for them. We have to realize that, that we would instill, number one, the fear of God, but also just a heart of gratitude. Again, you can come up to me afterwards and say, hey, I love whiners, right? I love being around them afterwards. But again, we see God here. He wants to put this to rest. He doesn't want any more complaints from the children of Israel on this manner. In verse 6, it tells us, so Moses spoke to the children of Israel. And each of their leaders gave him a rod apiece. For each leader, according to their father's houses, 12 rods, and the rod of Aaron was among their rods. And Moses placed the rods before the Lord in the tabernacle of witness. In the Holy of Holies, Moses drops off these 12 rods. And now it came to pass on the next day that Moses went into the tabernacle of witness, and behold... The rod of Aaron of the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds, had produced blossoms, and yielded ripe almonds. So all these guys, they throw their 12 sticks, right? They give their 12 sticks to Moses. And these 12 sticks, where do they? Are they in like in some type of greenhouse, some type of moisture environment? No, they're in a dark tent. That's where they're at. But before the presence of God. God said he would choose the man and reveal the man that he chose, that his rod would blossom. And not only did Aaron's rod sprout, not only did Aaron's rod come back from death to life, not only did Aaron's rod bud, not only did Aaron's rod blossom, not only did Aaron's rod yield fruit, but it yielded ripe fruit. They could be picking off fresh almonds and eating theirs. He's holding his staff. That's what he could do. And what we see here is that when God is calling in life, usually there's a God factor attached to it. Usually there's a God factor. I, I, oftentimes I feel bad for God. You know why I feel bad for God? He gets blamed for so many things, right? He gets, there's two people that get blamed for way more than they should. God and the devil, right? They get blamed for, oh, the devil made me do it. No, man, it wasn't the devil. It was me. It's the lure inside of me is what James says. The devil's not after you. The devil's worried about people with nuclear codes and stuff like that, right? That's who he's after. We do a good enough job on our own, sadly, continuing to go back and back and back to sin. But God, when he's calling, when he's doing something, when he's moving, usually there's a factor in it that no one could do. Moses can't do anything with a dead stick. He, he can't do anything with it. We see here a God factor, and God takes it all the way to the limit. In Acts chapter 1, verse 3, it tells us that he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Again, we think about it in the life of Jesus. Not only did Jesus resurrect from the dead, 
He could have resurrected, said hi to everybody that Sunday and be gone. And that would have been amazing enough. But no, he stays for 40 days after that. He cooks fish and chips for the disciples. He meets with other groups of people. He says, Thomas, here's, here, feel my hands, feel my side. And he takes things to the limit. Again, make sure that we're not just blaming things on God and make sure that it's actually God's calling in our life. Just own it. Hey, this is what I want to do. Just say that. It's okay, right? If it's sinful, then it's sinful. But don't blame God for so many things. Verse 9, Then Moses brought out all the rods from before the Lord to all the children of Israel. And talk about a sobering moment, right? They looked and each man took his rod, right? They each looked for their rod. Maybe they, they probably all first went to the one that budded to see the, whose name was on it, right? And then after that said, it's not my rod. I'm not the leader here. I'm not the man that God has called. They all left with their tail in between their legs after so much murmuring. Now there's a great question for us here, right? Was Aaron chosen because he was the most spiritual and holy? Aaron's track record throughout the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, was he chosen because he was the most holy, right? We could think of the golden calf. Moses leaves Aaron in charge for just a moment. He leaves, and while he's up there in the presence of God, he starts hearing the beat drop, right? And he says, God, I think there's war going down there. And God says, this is not war. You got to go down there. You got to pause your devils right now, and you got to go down there and deal with the nation of Israel. And when he approaches his brothers, Aaron, what is this? There's a bunch of naked people. There's a golden cow in the middle. They're all dancing, naked, cutting themselves. What's going on? Aaron doesn't apologize. He, doesn't, he says, I just took the gold and threw it in the fire, and this is what popped out, right? Again, Aaron wasn't chosen because he was the most spiritual or holy. I don't think Aaron was chosen because he was the most gifted. I think we should look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And more often than not, when God calls a man to be greatly used by him, it's a 1 Corinthians 1, 26 type of man. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. It says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. You have these two men, these two women within churches all the time. You have some that are called by God and they'll spend much of their life saying, God, there's no way you called me. I'm not good enough. I'm not gifted enough. I'm not eloquent enough. I'm not smart enough. And God's saying, that's not what I'm asking you. I've called you. God, he's concerned about our heart and our character towards him. David, no one would have chosen David. Not even Samuel, the most holy and godly man in all of Israel. He wouldn't have chosen David. 
God is the one that has to tell Samuel, hey, I don't look at the way man looks. I look at the heart. And then you have the other type of person that looks at all their accolades, looks how smart they are, looks at how great they are, and they say, God has to have called me here into this place. Calvary Chapel, Miami, get out of the way, give me the steering wheel, and let me take you to the path of victory, right? You'll get people like that every once in a while. We see that God, more often than not, yes, he does use the Pauls, the Sauls, but we see even for Paul, what a miracle of God and how all the glory can only go to the Lord. A man that was once causing Christians to blaspheme the name of God is now one of the chief apostles. Again, so incredible. This is the type of man that God calls. Not the most holy, not the most incredible, not the most special, but a man that is concerned with the heart of God. A man that's after, a man that's seeking after God's own heart. That's the man that God calls. Look at First and Second Timothy. You look at Titus. It's all about a man's character. God says, hey, I'll take care of the being able to teach after that. But hey, what does your character look like? Go back to chapter 17 and verse 10. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Bring Aaron's rod back before the testimony to be kept as a sign against the rebels that you may put their complaints away from me lest they die. Thus did Moses Just as the Lord commanded him, so he did. Again, another interesting note throughout the book of Numbers. Every time we see Moses obeying God and Moses' life is going great. Until the one time he disobeys God and he misrepresents God to the nation of Israel. But God says, hey, bring back Aaron's rod. We don't know. Maybe Aaron would have been showboating it, right? Every time someone has a complaint against them, you'd just be sitting there eating almonds, right, <laughs> off the rod or, or something like that. But God wanted Aaron's rod to be brought back into the tabernacle, and it was to be housed within the Ark of the Covenant, which also held the Ten Commandments, a jar of manna, and now Aaron's rod. And what difficulty for the nation of Israel, right? Think of somebody kept your three biggest failures and kept them in a golden box right how do you feel about that them they murmured and complained about the manna that God was giving them that's one of the first times the plague comes they murmur and complaining about Aaron now the rods in there too the ten commandments come they've broken all of them and that's what's sitting in this golden box right how would we feel about that what would we think about that You see, the amazing thing that a lot of Bible commentators write about is there within the Ark of the Covenant. Yes, those three things were in there. But you know what was on top of the Ark of the Covenant? The mercy seat. And what made the mercy seat the mercy seat was the blood of an innocent lamb sacrificed year after year after year. And for us, what does God look at in our lives? Does God look at our greatest failures and blunders? No, when God looks down upon our lives, if we are in Jesus Christ, all he sees is the blood of his son. All he sees is the perfect righteousness of his son. That's why we can be like Romans 8 and we can have no condemnation if we are in Jesus Christ. That's why there's only one way to have our sins covered. There's only one way to have our failures and our blunders covered. And it's not by trying to hide it ourselves. It's not by trying to never talk about it again. It's by bringing it into subjection, into what the Word says, and under the will and blood of Jesus Christ. And if it's 
an indictment on the nation of Israel trying to fight their high priest Aaron, how much greater of an indictment against us for fighting our great high priest you see, our great high priest, he didn't make a golden calf. He, wasn't, he hasn't ever sinned. Our high priest is perfect. And yet how often I try to fight him and saying, you, you shouldn't be ruler of my life. You shouldn't be really reigning here. You should really be taking care of this. I think I'd rather my, my flesh take over this, God. I think I'd be a far better ruler of this. I think I'd be a far better leader about this. God, don't you see what the world is saying? I think the world would be a greater leader in my family than you, my great high priest. If it's an indictment on the nation of Israel, how much more an indictment on us when we try to complain about our perfect high priest? We complain about his word that he's left for us. The word became flesh. Again, we should not just look at the nation of Israel and say, what a bunch of losers, right? We should look at our own lives and say, wow, Lord, how often I have fought the power that you have, the majesty that you have, the role that you have in my life. That's really what we are to apply from this chapter. Verse 12 and 13, we see the pendulum of emotions that the Israelites are on. Verse 12 says, So the children of Israel spoke to Moses, saying, Surely we die. And we perish, we all perish. Whoever even comes near the tabernacle of the Lord must die. Shall we all utterly die? Again, the emotions, the roller coaster that the nation of Israel is on. One moment they think Moses and Aaron are just power hungry. The next moment they think Moses and Aaron killed all those leaders. The other moment they think Moses and Aaron just brought them out to the wilderness to, to kill them all. And now they think that they're going to die. And what this reveals to us is that we shouldn't act like this. We shouldn't be like this, right? And if we're honest, is that not exactly what we do as Christians, right? One moment we're fighting God. God, I don't want to confess my sin. I'm not confessing my sin to anyone. I'm not confessing my sin to you. The next moment, oh, you never forgive me. You're never going to love me. You're never going to take me back, right? We are not to be tossed to and fro. We are to build our lives upon the foundation of Jesus Christ, and we are to take each thought captive. As we grow with God, we should be becoming more and more steady in our lives. That, that's how we should become. And we do. We're going to struggle. We're going to continue to fight that line. Sometimes we get too rigid and we get too religious and we get too black and white. And then we come to another extreme and then we're far too gracious and far too merciful. And now it's just getting ugly out there. And then we come back. That's going to happen. But our thought life, our life as leaders within our homes and where we're at, the world should look to you and you should be the most steady Eddie person out of the group. Right? You think of Paul and Paul, he's been through several shipwrecks, right? And he's on one, he's in the middle of the storm and he's just completely calm. He's just talking to the guys as a matter of fact, right? Hey, let everything off the boat. If not, we're going to all crash, right? What is this guy talking about? This guy's crazy, right? Then the shipwreck happens. Then they're going to separate. All as a matter of fact, hey, if anybody goes, we're all going to die. The only way we're going to survive is if everybody stays together. All right, keep everybody together. Don't kill any of the enemy, right? Keep everybody together. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, let's turn there. Because if we're honest, this great battle that each and every one of us are in all begins in the same place for each of us. 
It's a battle of our minds. We have to take each thought captive. For the young adults, it's having that biblical mindset. Not a mindset that's carnal, that leads to death, but a mindset that is from above, a mindset that is found in Scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, tells us, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Again, we need to take each thought captive, each thought that takes us from one pendulum to the other, each thought that comes about out of our emotions. We need to take those thoughts captive, bring them captive, and now you wrestle them and you bring them under the obedience of Christ. We take those thoughts, we take those feelings, we take those emotions, and now we bring them into captivity under the Word of God. And now we ask ourselves, what does the Word have to say about this? That's how we bring each thought into captivity. We should be more and more steady as we grow in the Lord. And Jesus, he practices what he preaches. In Isaiah 50, verse 6 through 7, speaking prophetically of Christ, it says, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting, for the Lord will help me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I will not be ashamed. Again, I know each of us, we go through stressful seasons in life. I don't think any of us have dealt with the stress that Jesus Christ went under. And yet he wasn't freaking out. He wasn't a pendulum leading up to him, his betrayal or during his betrayal. He's the most calm one there. The disciples are freaking out. They're running away. Peter's cutting off ears. Right, all bunch of chaos is ensuing, and he's just steady Eddie. Luke chapter nine verse fifty one tells us: Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus knew what was coming. wasn't freaking out. Wasn't going on one wave of emotions to another. He set his face steadfastly to Jerusalem. Now, was Jesus some type of robot, right? Did Jesus have emotions? Biblically here, right? Did Jesus have emotions? Yes. We know he wept even though he was about to raise Lazarus back to life. We know that he's been angry, flipping tables, whipping Pharisees, calling them whitewashed tombs and brood of vipers. We know that he struggled, sweating blood, asking God to take this cup from him. And yet, he set his face like a flint. Again, we should be the calmest person in the room. We should be the, the person that is the most stress-free because we know who's on the throne. And we know what his word says. We can think of Paul, and to a great degree, Paul has the same type of mindset that Jesus did. We already talked about him on these shipwrecks, about him getting bit by a viper and all types of things. But Ephesians chapter 4 verse 14, he tells us that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But 
speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. Again, we shouldn't be tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. Paul's telling us that is childish, that that's childish, right? And it's so true of a child. One of my kids, poor kid, he had a rough morning this morning. He was weeping because his chocolate milk bottle that was preheated for him was blue and not green. And that's what it means to be tossed easily to and fro. So many of us were weeping and mourning because our preheated chocolate milk bottle is not the color we expected this morning, right? That's not how we should be. We need to be more and more steady as we're growing in Christ. In Acts chapter 20, we see Paul here, and he says, And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me, right? Many of us, we ask for God to speak to us. And every city Paul goes to, what he hears from the Holy Spirit is, Hey, Paul, chains and tribulations await you, right? Is Paul freaking out? Is Paul losing his mind? No, what does he say in verse 24, a verse many of us quote, right? None of these things move me. Nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. None of these things moved Paul because he did not count his life dear to himself. Paul was truly a slave to Jesus Christ. All Paul had to be worried about was being faithful. That's all Paul had to worry about. Didn't have to worry about food or clothing. Didn't have to worry about where he was going or if he would even die. All Paul had to be concerned with is, am I being faithful to my master today? In the next chapter, in chapter 21, verse 12, they're all hearing this. They're all weeping. It says, when they heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him. They're pleading with Paul, please don't go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answers, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul would go on to tell his sons in the faith, Timothy and Titus. And 1 Timothy 3.2, it tells us that a bishop must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, and sober-minded. Sober-minded, not easily tossed to and fro by every news article, by every breaking news, by every Twitter update. We should not be like that. Titus chapter 1 verse 8, be hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, and self-controlled. Titus chapter 2 verse 6, likewise exhort the young men, young men here, be sober-minded. Again, we shouldn't be tossed to and fro. I think the key to this is that when our lives are truly wholly given to the Lord, when we are truly His slave, then our lives are in His hands. And then the only thing we have to worry about is, Lord, am I being faithful to what you've commanded me to do today? It's not an easy life, but it's a simple life. It is a simple life. We don't have to be so stressed. God says the righteous, they'll never be begging for bread. They will never be forsaken. All of our brothers and sisters who have been martyred for their faith mentally gave up their lives long before that for the sake of Christ. 
Their lives were truly not their own, just like Paul said. So again, Numbers 17, if we have that calling of God in our lives, may his fruit be evident. May we have that fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. May the fruit of our ministry be first and foremost seen in our spouse and our kids and the people that we're nearest to, the people that we're closest to. And maybe you've been sowing and sowing and tilling the ground and nothing's happened yet. Think of Galatians. Don't grow weary in doing good. For in due season, if you don't lose heart, you're going to reap that harvest. So maybe that too, you're saying, Lord, I'm trying to. They don't want to hear it. I'm that prophet that's not welcome in his own country or in his own home. Continue to be faithful. And in God's timing, he will do it. And finally, may we all grow in being sober-minded. Be sober-minded. That's not just talking about alcohol and drugs. That's a given. That's a gimme, right? I think we're all there, hopefully, right? No drugs, no alcohol. But with this, it goes to another level. That in the world that we're living in, are people not freaking out at every day with the news? Every day there's this fear that grips their heart. A fear that they didn't even know existed the day before. And now it's the worst thing ever. We're to be sober-minded. The whole ship could be going down and we're the ones relaxed. Hey, I prayed with God today. I talked with God. This is what's happening. That's what's happening. have to focus on the Lord. That's who we should be in these last days. 